Hey, good morning. At this time, we are going to dismiss our preschoolers back to Children's Church, so you guys are free to head on back. Uh, the rest of you, if you want to, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you also uh, want to as well, you can um, place a finger at Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we're going to glance at that a couple of times as well. Um, but uh, quickly, I want to uh, provide a little brief, uh, quick context, uh, context for the book of Nehemiah. Um, this book, am I good on sound? Am I good? Okay. Um, Nehemiah uh, is the book that follows after Ezra. The, the historical context is as follows. Around 700 B.C., the Assyrians scattered the tribes of Israel all over the known world. Around 600 B.C., the Babylonians basically destroy and depopulate Jerusalem. There are 70 years spent in captivity in Babylon. World empire leadership changed from the Babylonians to the Persians during that time. The book of Ezra begins with Cyrus, the Persian king, sending the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and reestablish Jewish culture. So we come to Nehemiah, and, and Nehemiah is a cupbearer uh, for, for the king, uh, Ar Ar Artaxerxes, okay? He's a king of Persia. A cupbearer was a significant office to hold. Uh, the, the modern American equivalent might be if you worked in the White House and you were both a Secret Service agent, a chief of staff, and a butler. All those roles rolled into one. It was a very prominent position that enabled the utmost trust by the king. The cupbearer must be willing to sip the king's cup of wine before handing it to the king uh, in, in case, because one of the easiest, quickest ways to assassinate a, a high position, a king, whatever, would be by poisoning them. So uh, the cupbearer is basically protecting the king from being poisoned. Now, because of the trust and loyalty that is established with this role, the king would seek advice and guidance from his cupbearers. Because if the king can trust the cupbearer, with his life, if the cupbearer is willing to take a bullet for the king, then surely he can trust uh, the cupbearer with some counsel as he makes his royal decisions. We remember Nehemiah for leading the people of Israel back into a place of peace and prosperity. And he is one of the key leaders who led them to the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. So with that in mind, that context in mind, let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read all 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The sermon this morning is about vision. This is a magical word in Christian ministry circles. We throw this word around a lot of the time. It's a buzzword. Um, But what is vision? Is it the ability of sight? And sure, absolutely. But it's so much more than that. We want to talk about so much more than that this morning. Um, You'll see a quote that gets thrown around a lot regarding this topic that says, vision is hope with a blueprint. I like that quote. I, I do because we all like hope. We need hope. But we need our hope to have hands and feet. Annie Stanley says, vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. Um, If anybody in here is a casual basketball fan, you'll be familiar with uh, Coach Jim Valvano. Uh, If you turn ESPN on in the month of December, there's usually what's called Jimmy V Week, where they raise awareness for cancer research and a foundation that was started in his name. Um, He's one of the most interesting characters in the history of college basketball. His enthusiasm and passion was really contagious, and Uh, I watched the uh, recent uh, 30 for 30 documentary about uh, him, uh, his North Carolina State team that won the national championship in 1983, and that documentary is called Survive in Advance. Highly recommend it. Um, But in that documentary, his players talk about that when they come to the program and they they start to sit under his coaching, uh, there were some of them that were like, this guy may be a lunatic. Uh, his passion was very strange. Uh, his confidence, the way that he talked about the coming success, the way that he talked about we're going to win, this is what it's going to be like, this is how we get there. And In their minds, Coach was not being very realistic. And so, literally, Coach Falvano, every season, would have a practice where he would bring the players onto the court. There would be no basketballs, no drills, no offense, no defense, no schemes that he would tote in a ladder and a pair of scissors. And they would practice what it would be like to win the national championship. And so they would climb up the ladder. I'm sure uh, Luther Vandross is playing. They're doing the music. Confetti's falling. They've got the whole shebang. And they're climbing up the ladder. They're cutting a piece off the net, which is the tradition that when you win a championship, you cut a piece off the net. And they sit there and they try to experience what is it going to be like when we win this thing? What's it going to be like to win it all? Again, his players thought he was a lunatic. But then that 1983 team happened, and the players in that documentary say that as as they go along, even though they lost 10 games that season, they finished the season with nine wins, three to win their conference championship, and six, which were won in the final minute to win the national tournament. And they say that during that run, it's like we began to see what he was talking about. We began to understand his vision that he had for us. It finally clicked and made sense. I wanted to talk about that vision is something that we thrive on as human beings. We need vision. We need to operate with vision. Vision, the the thirst for vision is woven into our DNA. Think about how powerful vision has been in your life. 
Think about the times when someone casted vision in your life, whether that was a parent or a sibling or a trusted, wiser, older mentor, someone that spoke life into who you are, what you're like. They're able to discern your gifts and abilities, and they're able to say, hey, I I think this is what God wants for your life. How encouraging is that? How life-giving is that? It's empowering to have someone cast vision for your life. We thrive on vision. Proverbs 29, 18 says that where there is no vision, the people perish. Likewise, where there is vision, people flourish, people thrive. We are meant to live with vision so that we would thrive, so that we would flourish. And as empowering and essential as vision is amongst our personal relationships, I want to talk today about how we should be thinking about vision corporately, how, should we, how we should be thinking about vision on a larger scale, a global scale even. We need to have a bigger vision. We need to have a, a larger dream. We need to have a, a vastness of hope for the city of Carrollton, for Carroll County, for West Georgia, and ultimately to the world. So here's my first point. Vision must have a prelude. The simplified definition of prelude is something that comes before and leads to something else. Uh, In a sense, it's cause and effect. So what is the prelude of vision? Perhaps one of the greatest sins of the American church is how much we have dug our heads in the sand when there's so much darkness all around us and there's so much brokenness all around us. And we have chosen to put our blinders on. We have chosen to voluntarily cover our eyes and not take note of the darkness around us. Some of you, you know, you grew up in church, and so you've always been uh, affirmed in your belief in the spiritual reality. You've always uh, believed that there is a God and there's sin. You've always believed that there's heaven and there's a hell. And then some of you, um, you did not grow up in that reality. You always doubted that there was a God. And then one, one day, God stepped into your life with his gospel message, and he brought you out of darkness, and he opened your eyes to the reality that there is light and there is goodness, and it has a name. It's God. It's Jesus. But also, that there is darkness, that there is actual evil, there is actual sin. God is making you aware of that through his gospel message. You entered spiritual reality. Um, you can now clearly see the death around you. You can now see the curse of sin running rampant in your family and friends. You can now see the the way that sin ransacks a a city, a community, even governmental systems. We should be confessing to our God that we have desired to ignore the spiritual darkness around us. We have rather to not look at it, to not notice it, to not confess it, to not admit to it. We should repent of placing our heads in the sand. We have chosen to intoxicate ourselves. Uh, We have chosen to take upon ourselves things that will uh, intoxicate us and not help us to deal with the, the gravity and the weight of sin and darkness and brokenness. That may look like the, you know, your family activities. That may look like your, your cute little hobbies. Or it may even be the, the affairs and activities of your local church. Anything to, to, to make us not deal with the harsh reality that there is sin and there is darkness and it is ransacking the creation around us. 
There have been studies done over the decades of men and women who were blind, either through birth or they lost their sight somewhere in their life. And, and through medical infer, uh, intervention, they were able to be given their sight back. Um, there was a, um, a researcher and a scholar named Marius von Sinden. And um, he noticed that as he studied these different people who were blind and gained their sight, that they were, some, a lot of them were very mentally troubled. Some were even very depressed. It was a fascinating study. And, and so he, he wrote an account of a young woman who had the situation where she was blind and she was given her sight. And so this is what he writes about um, her attitude with her newfound sight. In her ill humor, she once complained to her father, how comes it that I now find myself less happy than before? Everything that I see causes me a disagreeable emotion. Oh, I was much more at ease in my blindness. The father consoled his daughter with the thought that her present agitation was solely due to the sensation of strangeness in the sphere she was now moving in. The new situation she found herself plunged into by the recovery of her sight must necessarily awaken in her an uneasiness never felt before. She would, however, become as calm and contented as others as soon as she had grown more accustomed to seeing. I am glad to hear it, she replied, for if I were always to feel such uneasiness as I do at present at the sight of new things, I would sooner return on the spot to my former blindness." It is true that often in the way we fail to acknowledge and observe and accept the brokenness around us, that there is something in our heart that is confessing that we, in a way, would much rather return to blindness. We would much rather ourselves be put back in the dark so that we don't have to be confronted with the darkness around us. Um, God has awakened us to full life, both to eternal assurance and hope, but also the deep sadness and deep grief for our fellow man, for the brokenness in, that we see in God's creation around us. Uh, we have to look to God as the great source of spiritual light to move us forward as agents of light into the darkness, not to quench the light in the midst of the darkness. The gospel is a wake-up call to sobriety. We must live with awareness. We have to live with awareness. We are to live as sober people, not as the people who cower away. And so why am I harping so much on this? Why, why harp so much um, on living with awareness of darkness? Why is that necessary? Because if we are not living as a people full of awareness, choosing to be confronted with darkness and choosing to be aware of that, then there is no way that we can be a compassionate people. Awareness, consideration, acknowledgement, and understanding are necessary ingredients for compassion. That has to be present if we want to be a compassionate people. Consider how much evil and heartache and brokenness surrounds us, and then consider how little we weep and how little we grieve, how our reaction is nothing like Nehemiah's. The prelude of vision is awareness and compassion. We see in the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah is made aware of the condition of his people and the devastation of his city and its walls. Nehemiah's response is amazing. It is remarkable. It's remarkable because here he is living this life of luxury. He's in this most prominent role in the king's palace. 
Um, he's getting to, to enjoy all the benefits that come with that role. He's in, basically getting to enjoy great power. And still, when the news reaches his ears of how his city and his people, how they're suffering, he weeps and he mourns for days. I'm so convicted by that. How little I grieve, how little I mourn for my fellow man. That is something that I so severely lack. I politicize the problems. Instead of hurting and grieving for people, I condemn and complain. I'm surprised and frustrated when death smells like death. There's a terrible lack of empathy in my heart. I survey a terrible lack of empathy in the church often at times. But why is that? Why is there such a lack of empathy? Why why is there a lack of compassion? Why do we not hurt and grieve and mourn and weep? The, re- the reality is that the most reason, uh, the most likely reason that we do not have compassion and that we do not grieve for our fellow man is because we are not accurately aware of the condition of our own hearts. We are not aware of the sin that is still festering in our hearts. We are not grieving about what is going on when we look into the deep, dark corners of our hearts. We belittle our sin. I cannot hurt for those outside of me because I am not grieved about what has happened and what is going on inside of me. I belittle my sin and I belittle the wickedness that's still present. The other reason that I so severely lack empathy and compassion is because I so often fail to be in awe of what God has done with his gospel in my heart. And not only that, what he is continuing to do the process of sanctification, how he continues to pour grace upon me as he grows me and makes me more into the image of Christ. The fact that he still even bothers with me is amazing. But I don't don't think it's amazing on a daily basis. I just take it for granted. And because that is not a celebration that is constantly occurring in my heart, I cannot go and turn to my fellow man to, to see the brokenness in the world and then have any grief and compassion for that. The gospel necessitates awareness and compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus moving throughout all the cities and villages. And he's healing the sick, healing the afflicted. He's preaching. He's getting his hands dirty. He stepped down off his throne and he entered into the human condition. He adopted and embraced the human experience. That's what blows my mind about the incarnation. That God himself stepped off the throne and he received and adopted the human experience. It's so amazing to think about the fact that we have a great high priest who is able to empathize with us in every way because he experienced what it is like to be human. He knows. He has compassion for us. He has awareness of our, of our temptations and our hardships because he himself experienced it. We read on in Matthew chapter 9 that in the midst of all that preaching and all that healing, getting his hands dirty, they looked out on the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He tells his disciples, pray that God, the Lord of this plentiful harvest, would send out workers into this broken harvest field and that he would intervene and do something about this brokenness. 
We cannot move towards compassion and empathy unless we are remembering and recalling the work of, that Christ has done through his gospel in our lives. If Jesus was aware of my brokenness, and if he bothered to be concerned with my brokenness, and if he had compassion over a feeble, wicked sinner like me, how can I not turn to my fellow man and have compassion for him? Vision is about seeing. When Jesus became grieved, he spoke his vision that God would send out laborers into his harvest field. But that vision was built upon our next point, which is prayer. Prayer. Vision must be fueled by prayer. When we read verses 5 and 10 of Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, we see Nehemiah break out into this beautiful prayer to God. Uh, the reason it's important that we talk about prayer is because vision that aims to make much of God cannot happen without prayer. And visionary prayer is a practice in futility apart from the character of God. Visionary prayer must be built on the character of God. As you read through Nehemiah's prayer, what do we notice? How does it start? It starts with Nehemiah first placing God in his rightful place, right? O Lord, God of heaven, you are God and I am not. You are the Lord, the great I am. I am a mere man. Remember what vision is, right? Vision is seeing. Vision is seeing the problem. Vision is seeing the solution. Vision is seeing the path that takes you to a solution. We as Christians cannot be about the business of vision if we are not going to the one who sees not just one problem in its entirety, but he sees all problems in their entirety. The one who doesn't just have one answer, one solution, but he has all solutions. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. God is the great possessor of vision. His heart has broken for the hurting. His heart has been filled with compassion. He is committed to his solution. He is the Lord. He rules over all. It is his right as God to exercise his authority and his goodness and his graciousness in his broken creation for his namesake. If we want to be about the business of vision, we have to acknowledge who God is and we have to petition him. Um, something else that we need to notice in Nehemiah's prayer is his reminding God of his promises and his actions. Here's what Nehemiah is reminding God of. You are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. You told Moses that even though you would scatter your people for their unfaithfulness, that if they were to return to you in repentance, that you would gather them from the othermost places and bring them back together and make your name to dwell among them. And, you know, let's make sure we understand something. God is not forgetful. God does not need to be reminded. God is not listening to Nehemiah's prayers. And he's like, wait, did I say that? Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I do keep my covenants. Oh, yeah, I did say that I would bring them back. He's not, like, scuffling the papers on his desk, looking, looking for the post-it note where he made this particular promise. God does not be, need to be reminded. So then why does Nehemiah pray this way? Why should we pray this way? What does this have to do with vision? We pray like this because we need to remember this. It is important that we remember God's promises, that we remember his covenants. He remembers his covenants, and he is committed to the vision of his co covenants. But we are drawn into prayer by God that we may recall what he has done 
and what he has promised to do. We have no other assurance and confidence for which we can pray other than the character of God. That is the anchor by which we can pray. We, we, we pray in Jesus' name because everything about God's character is made manifest and complete in the person of Jesus Christ. We have no other way, that, no other point, no other person that we, to which we can anchor our soul other than the person of Jesus Christ. Likewise, Nehemiah has anchored his prayer in the character of God. Um, if we want to be a people of vision, if we truly want to be a people that sees the wrong in the world around us, we want to be about the solution, we have to pray as a people who know that everything is dependent upon the promises and the character of God. We have to have a vision that is in line with the character of God, and that is what Nehemiah is praying. He is stating what God has said, that he would draw his people back together, and he's preparing himself to move towards that end. We must remember that God has a has called us to approach him in prayer. And, and it bothers me that this verse, we abuse it with Facebook and bumper stickers. Um, but in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, God told the people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God has committed himself to hearing our prayers. And we have to let this sink in. That, that God would even bother listening to us, hearing us. But not, he's not only doing that, he's not only tolerating our prayers, he's committed to it. He's commanded it. He's delighted by it. We have to be amazed by that. We have to be amazed of what the gospel has afforded us in our prayer life. I'm currently reading... Um, Lincoln's Battle with God by Stephen Mansfield. And it's a, it's a book that basically uh, talks about the spiritual journey that Abraham Lincoln had. And um, Mansfield tries to paint a picture of the spiritual climate that Lincoln grew up in. And so, uh, to paint that picture for you, in the late 1700s, after the Revolutionary War, uh, basically the newly formed United States was ransacked in sin and atheistic philosophy. Uh, things were so bad... Uh, that at one point the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church concluded this, the eternal God has a controversy with this nation. Around that same time, uh, 1798 about, uh, some spiritual awakenings started to break out. There was one that was led by Jonathan Edwards' grandson in New England. There was some that reached down as far as the south and as far as the north in Canada. Uh, but there was one regional revival that broke out in Logan County, Kentucky. And um, a Presbyterian minister by the name of James McGreedy, who Stephen Mansfield described as a cross between Billy Graham and Daniel Boone, um, James McGreedy infiltrated the area with the gospel. And so as he shares the gospel, eventually three churches rise up. And so there's three rivers that ran through Logan County. And so they planted a church by each river. And... Um, he asked the congregations in all three churches that they would commit themselves to pray every Saturday evening and every Sunday morning and also that they, would, uh, that they would fast the third Saturday of every month. And this is what he told his congregations. When we consider the word and the promises of the compassionate God towards the poor lost family of Adam, 
we find the strongest encouragement for Christians to pray in faith, to ask in the name of Jesus for the conversion of their fellow men. With these promises before us, we feel encouraged to unite our supplications to a prayer-hearing God for the outpouring of his Spirit, that his people may be quickened and comforted, and that our children and sinners generally may be converted. After that charge to his congregations, uh, not much happened, but, but about a year later in July of 1799, um, at the Red River Congregation, the Spirit of God intervened and, quote, some of the boldest, most daring sinners in the county covered their faces and wept bitterly in repentance. Revival meetings in the region became so large and the Spirit of God moved so deeply that at one point, an entire eighth of the population of Kentucky, which is about 25,000 people, came to a large field. And there were so many people that they had to divide it up into six different areas with six different preachers proclaiming the gospel. When the Almighty Sovereign God is approached by his people and they remember his promises and they build the foundation of their prayers upon his character, and when his people have a vision that is in line with the vision in the heart of God, that is when we see change. That is when we see death be put to death. Um, earlier, Ben read uh, Luke 11, uh, and I was just thinking how quickly we forget about that. How quickly we forget that Jesus taught the disciples to pray by saying, what father among you, when your child asks for a fish, would you give him a snake instead? If you then, who are sinful, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father delight to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Are we asking God? As his children, are we coming to him and asking for him to pour out his Holy Spirit? Do we have a vision that unites with God's vision? And are we praying in that direction? Are we expecting him to be gracious with his spirit? Um, I'm going to come to the last P here, purpose. God gives us vision. God gives us purpose. Vision is seeing the problem and committing ourselves to the means of the solution. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is vision, the people thrive, the people flourish. We were created to thrive with vision. We were created to be agents of vision. Um, we're designed to live with purpose and intentionality. So I ask you, what is your purpose? And so I know there's a bunch of good Presbyterians in here, so probably what came into your mind was, uh, what is the chief end of man? Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man, that's good. That is really good. But how? How are you meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever? How is God ordained for you individually to glorify him? How has God drawn you into his great vision? God has always had a vision. He's always had this cosmic daydream for his creation, for his people. He's always been working towards that. He's been working to make that a reality since before the foundation of the world. My question is, what part do you play in that? To close out Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is recalling the significant role that he holds with the king. 
He's considering the influence and the weight that comes with that. He's the most trusted advisor. Um, so as Nehemiah is setting himself upon the course of vision in which he has made himself aware of the brokenness of his people, he's had compassion, he's prayed, um, he's preparing himself to be part of the redemption. He's preparing himself to be a means of the solution. Um, Nehemiah is operating with an expectation that all Christians should share. When we pray to God and ask him to move in the realm of brokenness and to fulfill a vision, we must expect God to cause us to be the means of accomplishing his purposes and answering our own prayers. We must expect and plan for God to cause us to be a means of fulfilling the vision he gives us. How do we know Nehemiah had this expectation? Because he was already praying in that direction. He prayed and asked God that the king would listen to him. May this man, this king, may he treat me with favor and mercy and hear my request. And Nehemiah, even as he grieves for his people and as he prays for them, he is already moving in the direction of expecting God to use him to be a part of the solution. Christ gave his disciples this expectation as well. If you go back to Matthew chapter 9, uh, where Jesus had compassion on the people because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, that he may send out laborers into his harvest. We are to pray earnestly that God would send out laborers into the harvest field and sow the seeds of the gospel and reap the fruits of salvation. So Matthew chapter 9 ends with the command to pray and the content to pray. Do you know how Matthew chapter 10 begins? Jesus has turned around and he's, t- he's telling the disciples that they are to go out and be the laborers. He just told them to pray for laborers to be sent out. And then the next chapter, he is sending them out as laborers. The disciples are the means to the solution. They are the means to the answer of that prayer. That expectation is the same for us as well. God gives the vision. God tells us how to pray. God does the work, and God makes us the means by which he accomplishes his purposes. So when we read Nehemiah saying, now I was cupbearer to the king, and we've read his prayer, we know what's coming next. And we're not going to get into chapter 2 today. But Nehemiah has a well-thought-out plan to articulate to the king. He knows what he's going to say. He knows the position of influence that he possesses as cupbearer. Nehemiah knows that his sovereign God has providentially placed him exactly where he needs to be to participate in the vision of God, to participate in redeeming this brokenness. So here's my question to you, and I want you to examine your life. Where has God given you influence? In what ways has God sovereignly positioned you to be an agent of reconciliation and redemption in his world? If we are honest with ourselves, we're pretty forgetful of Psalm 139. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is remarkable about the sovereignty and the providence of God is that before the foundation of the world and before you were formed in your mother's womb, 
God had deliberately and intentionally designed you to specifically participate in his kingdom. Your personality, your gifts, your strengths, even your weaknesses, even your own brokenness, these were all established by the hand of the almighty God. You are not chaos, you are not random, you are not merely the sum of your circumstances. You were designed by God. You were created with a purpose and for purpose. You are not an accident. I'm, and far be it for me to get up here and tell you that you're a special little snowflake. But the Bible is saying, the Bible is saying that you were deliberately designed by God to be a specific image bearer to move forward in his kingdom and carry out the plan for redemption. As an image bearer of God, you are meant to actively engage in God's vision for the story of redemption. You are an ambassador of God. God is making the appeal of his gospel through you, specifically through you. So what are you leveraging? And and where are you leveraging? And and considering who you are and how you're wired and all the callings and roles that God has given you, uh, how are you to leverage that now, right now? Um, What is your vision? For what do you hurt? And how do you hurt? What keeps popping up in your prayer life? What are the desires and and the griefs that keep popping up when you pray to God? Um, Who are the people that God has given you direct influence? In your work life, has God caused you to be a manager or an overseer of people? What is your vision for those employees? What do you observe in their lives that grieve you? Do you grieve for them? Why or why not? Or think about your coworkers, those you work with. How are you praying for them? Do you pray for them? How might God be directing you to be the manifestation of his grace in their lives? If you're a student, what grieves you about your classmates and friends? In what ways do you pray for them? What's your vision for your future? What are you going to do with your degree? What degree are you going to get? Is your vision and ambition to get a job, start a career, put in your nine to five and clock out, eat, drink, and be merry? Or do you have a greater vision? Is there something more that you want to aspire to? As you consider your education and the opportunities coming before you, you have to ask yourself, what does God want from my life? For your parents, what are you observing in your children? You know, whether they're toddlers or they're adults, What are you observing in your children that causes you grief? What are you observing that causes you to celebrate? What are you noticing about them, the the way that they're designed? What are you daydreaming that God would do with their lives? Um, We named our son Crosby, and it means at the cross or or from the cross. And so we were pretty excited about that and and just daydreaming about, you know, that, that he would come to know Jesus at the cross And then from the cross, Jesus would launch him out into a life of service for his kingdom. And so then the other day I was thinking about um, that quote uh, from the great martyred missionary Jim Elliott. He says, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. And let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. We've already detected my son's a lot more emotionally inclined and compassionate um, than his father. 
Uh, he certainly didn't get that from me. And, and so just daydreaming about that. And I'm just praying that, yes, my son would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that he would befriend Christ. <clears throat> but that, like Jim Elliott, when people, when people confront my son and they see Jesus in him, that they come to a crossroads and they've got to go one way or the other, that my son would have that kind of impact. And my son would be that kind of a labor in God's harvest field. For your older parents with adult children, how have you become disconnected from your children? Are they far away from you and far away from God? Are you properly grieving about that? Are you praying that God would intervene and that, that he would restore them and that he would restore uh, your relationship with them, whatever that may look like? And then are you laboring towards that end? Spouses, what is the vision for your marriage? Are you grieved? And not selfishly, not grieving over what you're not getting, what you're missing out on your marriage. Are you grieving over the fact that you cause your spouse grief? Are you grieving that your sin is ransacking your marriage at times? So often I move through my marriage thinking my wife hasn't made, she hit a home run, uh, she, she got so lucky. <clears throat> but the reality is, the reality is I, I have to be a miserable person to be married to. Because of, of what I've learned about myself and, and, and my sinful patterns, my patterns of transgression, um, I'm not an easy person to be married to. I wish that grieved me more. Will you make yourself a spouse who is committed to spiritual disciplines? Will you submit to one another? Will you place your spouse's joy above your own? What do you want your marriage to look like at the end of your life? What do you want it to look like in 20 years or five years or tomorrow? And to all of you, what is your vision for this church? What do you want this church to be about? What grieves you about your community, about the city of Carrollton? What brokenness do you observe? How are you praying for the community and for the world? And then how are you placing yourself on the path of redemption? We, we you know, if, if you're a newcomer, a visitor, man, we are so glad you're here. And we, and we want you to come and worship with us. And we want you to get connected to people in this church because we, our little mission statement is know God, grow together. <clears throat> we want you to grow together. But ultimately, we want you to participate in God's vision. We want you to serve. So as a church, are we praying and thinking about that? Are we praying and thinking about how are we going to participate in the vision of God in this community? <clears throat> so what will awaken us? What will cause us to open our eyes and, and, and to push back against the intoxication that the world has tried to force upon us? What will provide sobriety? How will we ever be a people of vision? How will we ever be a people of prayer? And what will transform us? What will make us embrace the purpose that God has for us? Um, as we said, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Cupbearers were responsible for making sure the king's wine cups were not poisoned. 
If necessary, they would taste test the wine before handing it to the king to make sure it had not been poisoned. Cupbearers needed to be prepared to take a bullet, so to speak. Hence the level of trust between a king and his cupbearer. I'd like to build a little gospel framework here. There are various scriptures in the Bible that connect God's wrath with the imagery of a cup. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Revelation 14, If anyone worships a beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The cup is a profound symbol used in the Bible for God's wrath. In Matthew chapter 20, Mary, the mother of James and John, asked Jesus if, when he comes into his kingdom, if, if they can sit to his left and to his right. Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And clueless as ever, James and John say, we are able. Jesus does not expound much further in that moment, but fast forward to that late night, anguishing session of prayer that Jesus has with his heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. One of the great ironies of the gospel is that the true king, the king of heaven and earth, that he stepped down off his throne and he came to be among us. He came to adopt the human experience. And he didn't come with celebration and proclamation like he deserved. He came in the quiet of night. He was born in a stable. He was born to lowly parents. Dirty, meek, blue-collar shepherds were the first to take witness. He studied under his adoptive father to learn carpentry. His, his hometown was so insignificant that in John 2, upon hearing that the Messiah has arrived, who he is and where he's from, Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He travels all over the region, walking with his friends, healing the physically broken and proclaiming the gospel to the spiritually broken. And he rebukes the self-righteous. This, this, the king condescended, and even though he had a right to clinch onto what was rightfully is, he chose to come and submit himself to his father's will and vision. There is a cup of wrath full to the brim of God's anger for the sins of mankind. We were rightfully deserving to drink it in, every last drop. It was ours to drink. It would have been eternal death and never-ending destruction for us. Why? Because God's holiness and his justice is lethal towards sin, and we are sinners. Therefore, what is beautiful to us now was once our poison. We celebrate the holiness of God now, but once it would have been lethal poison for us. But there was a cupbearer. There was one who stepped in, and who bore the cup for us. There was a king who stepped off his throne and bore the cup. Jesus Christ, the, the true king, he consumed every last drop on our behalf. 
How do we know that Jesus drank that cup? Because he submitted himself to the Father's will. On the night he was betrayed, he asked the Father, is there another way? Can this cup pass from me? But ultimately, he said, not my will, but your will, your vision be done. I'm committing myself to your vision. He took the cup and he drank it and he consumed God's hatred for sin. He consumed God's wrath, his justice, his indignation, and his disgust over our sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, and God treated him as such. God poured out his justice on his son, and with his final breath, Jesus said, it is finished. There's nothing left in that cup for you. That cup is empty. Jesus is a true and better cup bearer. He is the king who steps off the throne and bears the cup. He took the bullet for us. And because this is true, we are drawn to the family of God. Because Jesus had a full heart, full of grief and compassion for the hurting and the harassed, we are called into his kingdom. and We are, we are called to be a people of compassion. Because Jesus perfectly interceded for us. Go read John 17, the high priestly prayer. Listen to Jesus on the cross as he asks his father to forgive those who are slowly executing him. Jesus perfectly interceded and prayed up until the very end, even in the midst of torment. Because he did that, we are drawn into the throne room of God to petition him to move in a broken world. And because Jesus embraced with a whole heart his purpose that his father had given him, because he kept his word, because he embraced it completely, we are given great purpose. We are enticed to come and participate in the greatest enterprise the universe has ever known, which is the kingdom of God. So nothing can stop his kingdom. God has purposed his kingdom from before the foundation of the world. It will advance. His son will be triumphant. Satan will be vanquished. And that kingdom will be established. Nothing can stop it. Will you be a part of that vision? Will you come and participate in that? Do not settle for a small vision. Don't settle for something that only lasts for a lifetime. Settle for a vision where your return on investment will be paying off throughout all eternity. God's vision has no expiration date. May we be a people who step into the delight of our Heavenly Father and embrace the purpose that he has given for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that you give us your word. Thank you that we get to know who you are and what you're like. Thank you that we get to hear the gospel, not just once, but daily, just as we need it. Father, I pray for myself and, and confess how little vision I have had. I confess how little I have grieved and mourned for, for hurting broken people around me. I confess that I'm not a man of prayer. I confess that I don't trust you and your promises and your character. I confess that so often I have stiff-armed the roles and the callings and the purpose that you have given me. Father, help us to be a, a people and a church that embraces vision and, and God that we would that we would intervene 
and move in our city and our community. God, thank you for the honor, the honor and the privilege to get to participate in your kingdom. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.